At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Friends, as we are gathering here today, um, we're going to be continuing our sermon series we began last Sunday called Tomorrow, Preparing for the Sun to Rise Again. This series is anchored in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus spends some of his last few days before he goes to the cross with his disciples talking about his return to the earth. And as we sit here today, some 2,000 years after that event, we are still waiting for his return. Um, But here's the thing, we can still be certain that it will happen because he who has promised to return is faithful. And so as we gather today, we look forward to the coming of Jesus, his return to the earth, the sun rising again. And in this series, we're looking at what Jesus said about those events and the time surrounding it in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 so that we would know what to expect as well as how we might personally respond. So before we get to our next section, though, of these verses, I I want to just reflect for a moment, not about tomorrow, but about today. The series is called Tomorrow, so let's begin by talking about today. When you think about your today, how many of you see some difficulty in your today? If you see some difficulty in your today, raise your hand. There are a few of you whose lives are awesome, but for many of us, today experiences some challenges and some difficulty. And so how do we have hope today? That really is an important question for us to ask. In the midst of the difficulty that is around us, in the midst of the challenges that we experience, how do we have hope today? Well, the way that we have hope today is by knowing that the sun will come up tomorrow. And if you don't believe me, just ask the little orphan Annie, who said in her song in 1977's musical, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. I'm not gonna sing it. When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, the sun will come out tomorrow So you got to hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. Now, that song is cute, isn't it? But it's not especially helpful for us because we don't live in a musical. We don't live in a fairy tale. And Daddy Warbucks probably is not going to invite us to his home for Christmas. And so we live today in difficulty And yet, when I think about the lyrics to this song, I think that somewhere around them and near them is actually a really powerful thing that is available to all of us as followers of Christ. There is a hope that we have for tomorrow that we can experience today, and it's when we remember a slight variation on those lyrics, these words, the sun will come back tomorrow. So we got to hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're only a day away. Friends, the Son of God will come back, and that is the reason for our hope. 
We see that throughout Matthew 24 and 25, but we also see that throughout the Scriptures when prophecy is given. Warren Wiersbe says this about biblical prophecy. I love this. He says, The purpose of prophecy is not to entertain the curious, but to encourage the consecrated. Why does God give us prophecy? Why does Jesus speak about a future date when he will return to the earth? It's not just so that our curiosity can be satisfied, friends. It's so that we who are following him might be encouraged that one day things will be set right. In this series, we're looking about what Jesus says about his return so that we might have hope. We're going to look today specifically at the continuation of Jesus' sermon. By the way, this sermon is called the Olivet Discourse because he gives this sermon while he's on the Mount of Olives. We're going to continue reading in this sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples in verse 15 and carry on through verse 31. I want to read those verses for us, and after we read them, we'll back up and see a couple of things in those 16 verses today. Beginning in verse 15, it says this. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, Here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will perform great signs and wonders so as to be led astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if you say, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Friends, in these 16 verses, I want us to see two things today. The first thing I want us to see is this. Borrowing a lyric from the song, there will come a day that's gray. There'll come a day that's gray. Jesus wants his followers to know that before he returns to the earth, there will come a day that is grayer than any of the days that have preceded it. Jesus describes that in the verses that we just saw. 
And in order to best understand that, we really need to remember the context of these verses. Remember, as we saw last Sunday, when you look back to chapter, the beginning of chapter 24 and verse 3, what prompted this message was the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, when will the end come? When will your kingdom come to the earth? When will you return and, and set up all that has been promised by God? That question comes from the disciples. They want to know, Jesus, are you going to set up the kingdom on Tuesday or on Friday or on next Wednesday? We want to make sure we get it on our calendar. And Jesus' response is, the kingdom will come. The end of this age will happen. I will return to the earth, Jesus says, but it will happen at a future date. And as he begins to talk and explain, he begins to describe the era or the time when he will return to the earth. Specifically, we saw last Sunday that he talked about how his return will happen in an era of time that will be a seven-year period of time of great tribulation and difficulty upon the earth in the days just before he comes back. The disciples say, when are you going to come back? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to come back at the end of this period of seven years of great difficulty upon the earth. And I think we anchor that to a prophecy that is found in Daniel chapter 9. And during that period of seven years when that difficulty is happening upon the earth that precede the return of Christ, we saw last week that a number of challenging things are going to be happening upon the earth. Well, what are some of those things? Well, we saw that there are going to be false Christs who come upon the earth and try to draw people astray and gain a following. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars There's going to be famines and earthquakes and persecution that's going to come upon the earth. Jesus says, before I return, these things are going to happen. And at the end of that season of seven years, then I will return. Now, we just have covered a lot of ground in about two minutes. And if you were not here last week, you are some of those with your eyes that have gone glassy uh, in just those few moments. And so I would encourage you, even if you were here last week and you're still grasping to get your arms around this, maybe go back and listen to the podcast of last week. Read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Again, looking at the verses in chapter 24 and 25 and seeing the connection between those two. But again, the disciples have come and they've said, Jesus, when are you going to come back? When's the kingdom going to be established? And Jesus said, I'll come back and I will establish my kingdom after this seven-year tribulation upon the earth. Now, what else happens during that seven years? We saw some of the things, false Christs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. We saw some of those last Sunday. But what else does Jesus say is going to happen during that time? Well, one of the things he says is he, he says that there is going to come upon the earth a leader who will do a terrible thing in the very holy place of God in Jerusalem. We see this in verse 15 where Jesus describes the action of what we know of as the Antichrist by looking at other passages of Scripture that talk about this event. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in this holy place, let the reader understand. In other words, there will come a time when an antichrist will rise inside of that last seven years, and he will do something so terrible in the city of Jerusalem 
in the holy place of God, in the spot where the temple is located, that the followers of God will look at that event and they will call it an abomination of desolation. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, in order to best understand what is being talked about there, it's helpful for us to look back at another event that was called the abomination of desolation that is spoken of in Daniel's prophecy as Jesus points us. In Daniel chapter 11, in verse 31, we see this prophecy given about a future event. Now, remember, this happened, Daniel's prophecy comes hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Daniel says that there will be forces from him that shall appear and shall profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. What Daniel's prophecy is talking about is that there would be someone who would come and do something in the temple of God to draw away true worshipers of God from worshiping him and doing something awful in its place. Now, this abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about, most biblical scholars would see that event as having a connection to something that actually happened in 170 B.C. when there was a foreign leader named Antiochus Epiphanes who took the city of Jerusalem, and as he takes the city of Jerusalem, he is so angry with the Jews, he wants to do something that will drive them absolutely insane. So what does he do? He goes to the temple, and, he, and the very spot where an offering was supposed to be made to the one true God, he sets up an altar to the god Zeus. And then on that altar to the god Zeus, he offers a pig as a sacrifice. Now, I don't need to enlighten you too much about what a Jewish person would think about a pig being offered as a sacrifice in the very holy place of God to the, to the God Zeus, to understand that this was something that they were horrified at, and they turned their eyes away in revolt. It was an abomination that made desolate the place where God was to be worshipped, and this event happened in 170 B.C., I think what Jesus was saying when he talks about during the last seven years before his return that there will be an abomination of desolation, I think what he's saying is there's a future event that will remind you of what happened in 170 B.C. And the future event will be that an antichrist will come and will try to take the place of God and draw the people of God to worship him instead of the one true God. Part of the reason why we think that is by looking at what else the Scripture says about the events that Jesus talks about. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, these words. He says, "...let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Friends, what that passage talks about is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. It's talking about a future time when the Antichrist will go to the very temple of God and will take the place of God and say, you must worship me and not the God that you have typically worshipped in this location. That event of the Antichrist demanding that the world worship him instead of God will be an abomination that will make desolate the worship of God in that era. 
Jesus wants his followers to know that in the days before his return, a human being, an anti-Christ, will demand that we worship him instead of God. Not only do we see the rise of an antichrist in those gray days before Jesus' return, though, we also will see false Christs who will rise up and try to gain a following. We see words of those in in verses 23 through 26, where it talks about people will rise up and say, well, I'm the, the Christ or the Savior, follow me. And they'll even do a bunch of miraculous and wondrous signs, trying to draw an audience, trying to draw a crowd. But ultimately, they're not the true Savior, because what they're wanting is a following and a crowd unto themselves, not a following and a crowd unto those following Christ. Jesus said, beware in the time that is the end, because there will be those who will try to draw a following and take people away from Christ. Friends, as we live our lives today, we do not live in a time that is this last seven years. And yet we do live in a time where there are other things that rise up and invite us to worship that other thing instead of God. Friends, that's an abomination, and it makes desolate. It doesn't fill us up. It doesn't satisfy us when the God of greed and wealth invites us to bow and to organize our entire lives around its pursuit, or the God of sensuality rises up and says, do whatever feels right, or when the God of another religion, not the one true God, but a false God, a, a fake God rises up and says, follow me and do what I say. Those things are an abomination, we should turn away from those, just as in the last days in our day today, that we would not find ourselves bowing before them. There may be many who rise up and want to convince us that they are the true way. But let us not be deceived by how eloquent they speak or how big of an influence they have or how large of an audience or how nice of a building. In the last days, there will be false Christs. In the present day, there are those who want to draw us away from the Savior. May we never find ourselves in that spot. Friends, there is one Christ. There is one Savior. And what's his name? Jesus. We follow him and not these others. Jesus wants us to know that in the the days before his return, A gray will come upon the earth as an antichrist will step up and false Christ will invite people to worship them or follow other ways instead of the way of the one true God. And when that happens, it will initiate a time of great distress for the people of God. Look at what it says in verses 16 and following when the antichrist says, you must worship me, any that don't worship him, what happens to them? They're in great jeopardy, and so they flee to the mountains. The description there of what transpires is of someone that that doesn't, it's it's so dire, it is such a significant situation, they don't even have time to go back to their house. I don't know if you've ever played that game before where you think, if my house was on fire, what would I go back to get? You think, maybe I'd go back to get the photo albums or this, this favorite family item of some kind. 
What Jesus is saying is if the situation was so dire, if this challenge was so great, you don't even have time to go back for those things. And in this day, the situation is so challenging upon the face of the earth, there's no time to go back. Those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days are wishing they weren't because their situation and their challenge is so difficult and the situation is so dire. They run off into the hills because the situation has become so significant in those last days. As a matter of fact, the situation is so bad that Jesus says that it's never been that bad before and never will be again. Now think about that statement from a Jewish man who knew everything. Just think about from the perspective of the Jewish people, the things that Jesus says those last days will be worse than. Worse than the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, like we talked about last Sunday. Worse than the Holocaust, where six million Jews die in Nazi death camps. Jesus says that the events of that last seven years will be worse than even those events. It's that kind of a gray that settles in upon the earth in the days before Christ returns. The situation is so bad, Jesus says that if God didn't cut it short, no one would survive. In other words, we've talked about how this this era of difficulty upon the earth, this time of tribulation is seven years long. If it was eight, nobody would make it. God cuts it short because he wants there to be a remnant of believers upon the earth in that last day when he returns. The situation at that time is dark, it's gray, and it's difficult. We think about it as Jesus talks about it as like the pain of childbirth. What happens in childbirth? The pain gets more intense the longer the pregnancy goes on and is most painful in the moments before the joy of that birth. What Jesus is saying is the the events that will immediately precede his return will be the hardest, harshest events since all of history, but they will be what immediately precedes the wonderful act of his return. Now, aren't you encouraged by all of that? Well, I think that we can find great encouragement in this, friends. And here's what I I think we can see in this. Sometimes we think, you know what? We need to make this world better. And if we make this world better and better and better and better and better, then Jesus will be welcome here and he will come back. And laced within that is this this idea that we obey so that Jesus might come back. No, that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that Jesus comes back not when the earth is at its best, but when the earth is at its worst. When there is rebellion and an antichrist and and people following and worshiping other gods, that's when Jesus comes back. He doesn't come back because we've made it right. He comes back to make it right. And as we live out our lives in the midst of this dark and gray and difficult world, friends, we can have a hope that the world will be made right again. But it won't be made right by us. It will be made right by him. There are broken systems in the world around us. Now, as we live our lives, it is a good ethic 
for us to live our lives and to share the love of Christ and to care for those around us and to live our lives according to God's direction. That is a good ethic for us to live by. But we don't do that so that Jesus will come back. We do that because we know he is coming back. And we'll one day give an account for our lives at that time. Jesus wants us to know that there will come a day that's gray, and it will be in the time immediately preceding his coming. But after making that statement, he, he gives us this incredible hope that the sun will come back tomorrow. He lets us know that he's coming back. And we see this in verses 27 on down through verse 31. In the midst of the gray and in the midst of the darkness of this world, Jesus promises to come again. Verse 27 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, we'll see it. Those who are on the earth at the time of Jesus' return won't miss it. It will fill up the sky. It may be sudden, like a lightning bolt, but it will be dramatic and not subtle. That the world might know that Christ is returning. Not only that, it will happen at a moment and in an era when the people of God are in dire need. Verse 28 lets us know that as it talks about wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now that's a kind of a, an odd phrase and it's hard for us to understand exactly what Jesus means. I'll give you my best understanding of what he is talking about. What he's talking about here is that there will come a time just before his return when Israel will be like a carcass on the earth. And the Antichrist and the, the false prophets and the enemies of God will be surrounding the nation, ready to pounce on it and destroy it. And at that moment, the Son of God will return to protect, provide, redeem, and save his people. We see this in Zechariah chapter 14 and in other prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about when Messiah comes, when the Savior comes again, protecting his people. Again, when it's at the gray, when it's at the darkness, when it's at the hard spot, that will be when the Son of Man will return. And when he returns, it will be dramatic so that no one misses it. Look at what it says in verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, friends, when you see that, what does that mean? Does it mean that literally all of the stars and the moon are going to fall from the sky? We don't know exactly, but here's what we do know. We do know that the sky will go dark, and it will go dark for everyone who lives on the face of the earth, regardless of where you live, all at the same time. That's dark, and that's supernatural. God will darken everything. For what purpose? He darkens everything so that we cannot miss the sun returning in the sky. Think about this. When Jesus came the first time in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2 talked about what happening. God put a star in the sky to invite people to come and to worship and acknowledge the birth of Jesus. 
How many people saw that star? Well, the scripture would tell us the only people that really saw it, at least, and acted on it, and their story needed to be told, were some astrologers. Why did only astrologers see that star? Because they were the only ones who were observing. There were so many other stars in the sky. The moon was there. The sun was there. It was rising and it was setting. Only those who were intently looking would see that sign of the Son of Man at his first coming. But at the second coming of Christ, God removes distraction. It goes black, dark, so that the only light is the light of the sun, so that no one can miss what God is doing in that moment. That's this kind of drama. You know, you think about it in terms of uh, buying jewelry. Um, Apparently, I need to buy more jewelry for my wife in the sense that when I was thinking about this, it was 20-something years ago when I bought an engagement ring for Kimberly. It was the last time I went to a jewelry store to buy her a piece of jewelry. And at that time, they take that diamond and they set it out on some black velvet. Why? Because it sparkled and shone in contrast. In the same way, God will take the sky black at the second coming of Christ. Why? So that Jesus, the sun, will shine and will sparkle so that no one can miss his coming. And when people see Christ in the sky, there are two different responses or reactions that are possible in that moment. We see both of them inside of these verses. Some will mourn on that day. Verse 30 lets us know when the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because there's an understanding that when the Son of Man comes, He is coming in judgment. And those who have rejected Christ will be judged on that day. So one of the possible reactions to the return of the Son is to mourn because judgment is coming. But there's a second response that is possible, and we see it in verse 31. Some will mourn because of the judgment that is to come. But verse 31 lets us know, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of the heaven to the other. It's possible to mourn because judgment is coming, but it's also possible, friends, instead of mourning, to rejoice because we are gathered to him for salvation. Friends, we see this mentioned here as the opportunity of salvation for all people. And what makes a difference of whether we mourn on the day of Christ's return or whether we are saved and gathered to his side is how we respond to Jesus in this life. If we accept his death on the cross as the penalty for our sins, we believe that he's the son of God, then what happens is God takes his death on the cross and counts that to pay the penalty that our sins deserve so that we might be forgiven in him. But if we reject that, all that is left for us at the return of Christ is to mourn because judgment is coming. Michael Green says this, New Testament scholar, I I read this last week as well, but it's worth reading again. The return of Christ has another important facet to it, which this chapter underlines. History is going somewhere. It's not meaningless. It's not random. It's not eternal. 
There will be a real end just as there was a real beginning. And at the end, we shall find none other than Jesus Christ. Friends, one day, each and every one of us will stand before God. We will have a a face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And what will determine whether we mourn for judgment or whether we are gathered for salvation will be how we have responded to him in this life. Friends, how have you responded to the person of Christ? Have you rejected him? Are you waiting for something else to happen? Or have you embraced him as your Savior? Friends, if you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't wait. It is our impassioned plea that you would not be one who waits and then who mourns, but you would be one who responds and believes that you might be gathered and saved. What is our hope for tomorrow? Our hope is that the sun will come back again. Just as we saw in the song, the sun will come back tomorrow. So we got to hang on till tomorrow, come what may. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. You're only a day away. Friends, as we prepare to conclude our service today, I want to pray for us. And as I pray, I want you just to bow your heads. And I want you to just reflect about your response to the person of Jesus Christ. We have assurance, friends, that he is coming back. We know that that is going to happen because he who has promised to return is faithful. And when he returns, we will all stand before him. Are you trusting in him? Are you believing in him that he might gather you on that day? Or are you rejecting him and going your own way? Waiting, really, the judgment that is to come. Father God, I pray today for all who hear my voice. I pray that they would open their hearts in faith and that they would trust in Jesus. That right now, where they sit from their heart, they would be welcoming his death on the cross as the payment for their sins. That they might be gathered to you on that final day and to salvation. And Father, I pray that you would help us as followers of Christ today, those who have already made this decision, those who have already trusted you, those who are already waiting for the return and the salvation that is to come. Father, that you would just remind us of this reality of this future event, and you would encourage us to go and take this message of hope and salvation to all who need it, that on that day, salvation would find those that we know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.